Our remarks this morning will somewhat from the outline of yesterday. Go back to point five on the outline, which is entitled The Sermon on the Mount. And as we said yesterday, probably more accurately, we would we would refer to this as Christ's discourse to the cause. To set forth the principles of that hope, that is the hope of Israel. We'd like to call your attention to the fact that the time of the Sermon on the Mount is fixed between the miracle of the sign of John 2 and the trip to Jerusalem at the Passover after his baptism, which account begins in John 2.13. You might just turn to John 2.13. Uh, we might read 2.12. It says, and he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And before that event, I, we would go to Matthew 5 and look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is uh, the part that's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And it's from the Sermon on the Mount that we have the theme of this uh, weekend study. That is, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What we want to do is set the scene for Christ's discourse to his disciples, and from that I think we'll get the impact of what he meant by saying to them, seek ye first the kingdom of God. If continuing in, in, in the 13th of John, and in the 2nd of John, is the 13th verse, this is the occasion in which it says, He found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, the changes of money setting. When he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple and the, and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changes money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remember that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. It's on this it's at this time that he also records the visit to by Nicodemus who came to him by night. Therefore, before the sermon was delivered, we might conclude that our Lord had been to Cana but the miracle of water to wine had occurred, visited throughout the land, preaching those things concerning the kingdom of God and calling men to repentance. The same was spreading throughout the land and in fact into many far away lands. Let's look up for a reference, a few references to set the tone for the sermon. Let's look in Matthew, the fourth chapter, and read verses 13 to 17. And remember, we're here in the, in the preparation period. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast, in the borders of Zabulon and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. 
The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the 23rd to the 25th verse, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went through it all Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments, and those that were possessed with devils, and those that were lunatics, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, and from Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. And returning to the second of John, let's read 18 through 22. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this, was this temple in building. Wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, and note this, when he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had said. And when Jesus, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Also, we'd like to note the criticism that he uh, issued to Nicodemus. And remember, this is on the same occasion in Jerusalem uh, in John, the third chapter, the ninth and the tenth verses. We will return to this a little later this morning. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel? and knoweth not these things. So look at the criticism that he's pointing out to Nicodemus. So we note that our Lord, as he went about Galilee in the early days of his ministry, was well aware of what men were alike. Also what he could expect from the official position of jury. We note in passing that Nicodemus, who didn't know what it meant to be baptized of the Spirit, became a believer. And we are encouraged to remember that we too can grow and learn in the truth and become profitable to the Lord. The basis of this acceptability is learning to be a wise man, which our Lord says is to hear or to heed his sayings and then do them. Hearing is understanding. Understanding is a belief or conviction born of knowledge. Therefore our Lord said, this is life eternal, to know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The proverb says, and you might turn to this and look at it, that in the ninth chapter, the tenth verse, Proverbs 9, 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Note that. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. 
Also, the heart of him that hath understanding seeketh knowledge. That's Proverbs 15, 14. We are also reminded that without knowledge we perish. You might look at Hosea 4, 6, and, and it's, I think it's come through fairly clear this, this weekend that uh, knowledge is, is an important aspect of our service to God. But if you look at Hosea 4, 6, and this dealt with the Jewish people, and we would submit to you that as it applied to the Jewish people, so it will also apply to us if we fail. My people are destroyed, this is the prophet Hosea speaking through God, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me. Seeing thou hast forgotten the law by God, I will also forget thy children. Therefore, the more we understand, the more we seek to know, the purpose being that we, through the beauty of the Scriptures, can grow in the fullness of the stature of the man that we are called to emulate, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.13 We stand in awe when we realize the high calling to which we are called in Christ Jesus. Nowhere in the Scripture are we given a more direct list of what our Lord expects of us and the admonition to follow holiness than in the discourse given to his disciples on Mount Tabor recorded in Matthew 5 through 7. Now, I think uh, Brother Ken pointed that out this morning, you know, that, that Christ and, and he, the, the sighting of the wise man who built upon a rock comes from the, the concluding remarks of the Sermon on the Mount. And as he pointed out, it's very direct, it's very simple. We would suggest to you that, that this entire consideration of this discourse, and this was the first discourse that Christ gave to his disciples after the selection of the twelve. Remember, we, we looked at the preparation period they, where they, they saw those four miracles. He then called them, and then once calling them, we really come to verse 1 of chapter 5. Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Remember the setting. The twelve had just been called and had just elected to follow him. Some of them had been around our Lord for some months. And it was during those months of preparation and had listened to other words that he spake. Probably all had been baptized by John the Baptist. And most had been present to witness the miracle at Cain of Galilee. Most of them were Galileans, maybe all but Judas Iscariot. They had come from varied backgrounds. Most were fishermen or laborers around the sea. However, politically, that was Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. This position varied from the quiet James and John to the loud and boisterous Peter. Most of the twelve came not from the learned and prosperous, but from the working class, unlearned Galileans. We read or are told that the Galileans were generally thought to be inferior by the learning center of the nation at that time. In other words, the Jerusalem was a great learning center, and when you got to Galilee, 
the Galileans will look down upon you. Remember, they said of Christ, can any good come out of Galilee? I think it's interesting, and this is something I think that should be important to the younger brothers and sisters, at their ages, they were all probably around 30 years of age. Late 20s, early 30s. There weren't any old men sitting out in, the, in that audience that day amongst the 12. There could have been others. But they, they were relatively what we would say today, young men. Possibly there were three sets of brothers. We know there were two sets because we know James and John were brothers. And we know Simon, Peter, and Andrew were brothers. Possibly Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, were both were brothers. So he could have been, of the 12, six of them could have been uh, in paths, three brothers. This leads us to the teaching that our Lord was about to embark upon, which was to the 12 and to all which would subsequently come to him, that is, the ecclesia. There's noticeable order in his discourse. Firstly, we are given, and you might turn to Matthew 5 now because we're going to just kind of drift through 5, 6, and 7. Firstly, we are given a portrait of one who accepts the calling, a portrait of a saint. Some writers have said it is primarily a portrait of the Lord himself. And for those of you who like to continue some of this thought, you might always contrast the Sermon on the Mount with the, the book of Ephesians. And, and if you are familiar, there's a book around called Portrait of a Saint, which is an, an analysis of the book of, of Ephesians. Well, the portrait of the saint of the, of the Ephesian uh, uh, book is very similar to the portrait that is delivered in the sermon of a saint, which has been suggested is a portrait of Christ himself. Uh, again, we, we see the, the as it the effect that it has upon those who are in the truth. Firstly, they were poor in spirit. These are known to us as the Beatitudes. They are blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are they that mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and blessed are ye when men shall revile you and falsely accuse you and speak against you evilly. This is a record of ten blessings that inure to those who are the called. He then tells them in verse 13, he sets forth three principles. Ye are, he says, firstly, the salt of the earth, Secondly, a light, the light of the world. And thirdly, a city on a hill. Salt, we, the salt of the earth, which we recognize as, as the preservation of truth or the preservation of the faith, where we recognize that salt has, is known for its flavor and its zest. Without the truth, there is nothing. The light of the world identifies with the understanding of the way. Light, we always contrast with darkness. One in darkness, again, equates to one who is blind. But said to, these, to his followers and disciples that they were to be the light of the world. They were to be full of understanding. And, you know, here we want you to think about the, 
the miracles that he immediately, and the discourses that he immediately followed to give them, which was designed to give them understanding that they might serve him acceptably. A city on a hill, and we think that that points to the city that will give light in the age to come, that would show forth light, and that city set on a hill is Mount Zion. Then he gives a list of contrasts showing the superiority of that calling to Moses' law. And if you if you look at it, uh, typically it would be from verse 21. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, that shall not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Rachel shall be in danger of the council. And whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of Gehenna fire. The reminder here is that the act condemned under the law now the thought was equally to be brought into subjection. And when you, we began to focus on that, we see what Christ really expects of us. Uh, he expects total thought control. It's not enough that we don't murder or don't kill, but we are not to get even the thought. We're not even to think that we should co commit a, a accusation against our brother or against anyone. Verses 39 through 48 of the fifth chapter bring us, bring us to the zenith of our calling, that is perfection. And just look at them and see what our Lord expects of us. And remember on this occasion he was speaking to a group of young men that he had just called. And now he was setting forth to them the hope of our calling and the expectations of them if they were to serve him. He says, ye have heard, this is from verse 39, but I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him plain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would buy of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard it said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So the zenith of this calling is in verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. We can immediately see that the law of non-resistance, giving, always the second mile, just as our Heavenly Father does for his children, makes us conscious of our human frailty. The closing of chapter 5 brings 
to the brings us to the climax of our calling. It is to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Anything we might say with such a statement is inadequate. For we realize that our Father has offered us a place with the Son of Righteousness to show forth his name throughout the aeon of aeon, and that no sacrifice on our part can be compared to this glory. Jesus, the Christ, the Savior anointed, then began to explain to his disciples what was necessary to obtain that position. In chapter 6, we note that three things that he points to us. Firstly, our arms, that's A-L-M-S, which means our gifts. Secondly, our prayer, or prayers, which speaks of our needs. And thirdly, our fasting, which speaks of our self-denial, our, our denial of self. Arms, our gifts, only to note that we should be careful that anything we do, we do not to be seen of men. But only God knows what we do, for we do it in secret. And, and look at verses uh, 1 and 2 from chapter 6. Take heed that you do not show arms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have thy reward. But when thou doest thine alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. That thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Very simple, isn't it? What we do, we do in secret. To be only recognized by God. Because if we do things to be seen of men or to be elevated among men, then we might as well do nothing. But we have our reward. Prayer, he, he, he says... More, he, he begins us with what you don't do. Look in verse 5. Do not pray as a hypocrite, because again they love to be seen of men. But when we pray, enter into your closet, shut the door, pray to your Father in secret, and your Father, which heareth in secret, will reward thee openly. Note, we pray, we use not vain repetitions as a heathen, for they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. But remember, God knows what we need before we even ask. I mean, again, you know, one way we can relate this is, is our children. You want your child to keep asking you something over and over? No, you don't. Our Heavenly Father wants us to be the same way, not vain repetition. He knows what we need, and he will take care of our needs. And then we have a, the prayer given us that our Lord told us to use. And, and note the order. Again, we have a perfect order. The first thing is, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our commitment to him and to his name, followed by giving us our day, this day, our daily bread. 
Forgive us our debts, and here's a, a, an incorrect translation in the King James. It says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The proper translation is, as we have forgiven. And it reminds you a bit of what we saw in chapter 5. It said, when you come to your altar, come to the altar with your gifts, and remember that your, father, uh, your brother has ought against you, go first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gifts. That's the 24th and 25th verse of chapter 5. So, see, here, when we ask for forgiveness, we must be conscious that we have forgiven all who have done anything toward us. We pray that we, that our Father lead us not in trials, but deliver us from evil. And finally closing with, Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Again, homage to the God of heaven, our God, Yahweh. We come to fasting, and this may puzzle some, it, it bothered me, I really didn't know what fastings were, but if you look in verse 16, it says, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. Well, how do we fast? I think the, the key comes from Leviticus 16.29, you might turn to that. Again, this is on the seventh day of the month and the tenth day of the month. And you say, Ye shall afflict your soul, and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. So here on this day, they were to afflict their soul. We believe that fasting, as it's in, in the law, means afflict your soul, and it equates to rigorous self-denial meaning that the disciple of Jesus Christ are to journey from selfishness to selflessness. I remember, as creatures of, of, human, of human flesh, we're selfish. We see it from the earliest child that we looked at, and it's in all of us, a very selfish characteristic. What's good for us? You read little Abner, some of you older fellows, uh, always remember there was a guy named Bull Moose. And Bull Moose thought what was good for the, the world, what was good for Bull Moose was good for the world. Well, that's the human characteristic, selfishness. Well, to journey this affliction of soul, we believe that you, we must journey, must journey from selfishness to selflessness. We take the journey in principle to see how it works in practice. We'll begin with the 17th verse. Anoint your head and wash your face. And, and our Lord says, But when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face. What does it mean? Again, we come to the point, our intellect must be the basis of our fasting or our self-denial. Uh, I don't think anybody has any question that when you anoint your head, that is dealing with the intellectual process that, that we have to go through. We wash our face, meaning to be clean, avoid all appearance of evil. Also to remember the basis of our being clean is, one, through the Word. 
the person is recognized by his face, and therefore the countenance should, should be the reflection of the person, his actions. Jesus said, I mean James said, Behold yourself in a glass. If you forget what manner of person you are, you are not washing your face. The Lord then gives us much detail as to what comprises our self-denial. Firstly, he says to lay up treasures in heaven, not on earth. Verse 21. Set Let's read that from verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, which where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where, you, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Secondly, our eyes should be with singleness of purpose. Look in verse 22, he says, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Note that the eye is medically connected with, as, with the brain. It's considered medically to be part of the brain. And therefore our whole intellect is perceived as being in light. We must know before we can act. And I think Brother Ken brought that out earlier this morning. We must know, and then we act. And under God's law, ignorance is not acceptable. And when you think about that a minute, that's true even in, in man's law. You know, if you tell the officer of the law that, you know, you didn't know, I don't think that's going to keep him from giving you the ticket. Well, certainly if it's true uh, amongst the mundane, it's true with our Heavenly Father. Uh, ignorance is the most unacceptable excuse we can offer. In verse 23, Christ tells us that our service to him cannot be divided. You either serve God or mammon. In the closing verses of chapter 6, we are given two examples of care by our Heavenly Father. Verse 25, it says, Take no thought for, for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink. What is your body? What shall you put on it? Is not life more than meat and body than raiment? And then we've given the fowls food as to the fowls of, owl, of the owl. For they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into bonds. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? And then in 28, he says, Why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field. They toil not, neither do they spin. Yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, he, shall he not much more clothe ye, or ye of, or clothe you, O ye of little faith? So we, we see the two examples. Food, he provides to, for the birds of the air. Clothing, he provides for the lilies of the field. Therefore, he says, be not anxious for any of the necessities of life. For God provides for you as he provides for the birds and the grass. 
As we think of the journey, we then see that the message is clear. And we think back to the 42nd verse of the 5th chapter. Give to him that asks it. And that's the, that's the commandment part. And it doesn't say ask any questions. If somebody needs from you, give. For it does not belong to you anyway. It all belongs to God. It all belongs to the Father. It is this human selfishness that belongs to the Gentiles. God will clothe us and feed us. That's why he says, take no thought, saying what we shall eat or what we shall drink or wherewithal shall we be clothed. For after these things do the Gentiles see. For your heavenly Father knoweth what ye have need of. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So we see now, our guide is in verse 33, which is the theme of our weekend study. He's already established to be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And now that has been followed by, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. This is the priority if we hope to attain to the position of consubstantiality with deity. In other words, if we expect to be consubstantial with deity, we must strive to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, and we must seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, realizing that in our human frailty, our attaining to such a goal can only be through desire and, and effort. It can't be through attaining. It helps us to realize, I, I think, above everything else, our insufficiency and our need to call on him because it's impossible for us to attain to the calling to which we are called. We can only through his mercy ever hope to enter into his kingdom. Again, and this comes through so clearly when we think of the grace of God that has to be bestowed upon us. He begins verse the chapter 7 with, Judge not that you be not judged. And this causes us to ponder the thoughts that follow. We believe that this discourse is continuous, and therefore we shall look at the total, then view the specific. Christ said, to be sure your judgment, to be sure that your judgment was surely to be the basis on which you would be judged. In other words, as you judge others, so you will be judged. This is the same thought as we got from the prayer. If we forgive not those that trespass against us, neither will God forgive us our trespasses. Therefore, firstly, he says, we must get the beam out of our eye so we can see clearly to get the dust out of our brother's eye. He enjoins us to look at, at self very dis discerningly before you judge your brother. And we think that's what the message is, to look at yourself very discerningly before you start judging others. Verse 6 says, give not the holy to dogs. 
or cast your pearls before swine, usually used to characterize those outside. But the reading in 2 Peter 22, you might turn to that. Second Peter. Two twenty-two. But it has happened that unto them according to the truth proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed is what is washed to her wallowing in the mire. This may make it suggest that those who have become apostates within the body or within the ecclesia. So therefore, when, when Christ says to his disciples, Give not that which is holy unto dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you, it may be speaking within the body, not without the body. It's something for us to consider. Verse 7 says, Ask, seek, knock, and they all indicate that as with food and raiment, so with the word. As we seek and knock, we will find. It will be opened unto us. A certain reminder that if we seek the Lord and call upon him, he will answer and show us the way. Christ suggests that as we provide for our children, our Heavenly Father will provide for us. We might look at in verse 10. It says, if you then, 11, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good gifts unto you? Our Heavenly Father provides for us if we ask and are searching the truth. Our faith will show us or provide the answer. The journey all, always requires that we treat people as we want to be treated. And we think this is the third uh, point that in the overall sermon that he gives. And notice that it's in verse 12 where he says, and this is a summary in effect of our alms, our prayer, and our fasting. Where he says, Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, be even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And, and here we call to your mind that these, tw these 12 men that he was talking to were thoroughly familiar with the law and the prophets. That's why in, the, in, in chapter 5, he had drawn a lot of conclusions and comparisons with the law of Moses. You know, the law says what I say. So he had uh, upgraded them from what the law of Moses had offered to what the law of Christ demanded. The journey always requires that we treat people as we want to be treated. The Lord then reminds us that this is the teaching of the law and the prophets. So we note that the real meaning and type was identical. And to be in the truth, and to be in the truth required the same perception in both ages. We will return to the two ways shortly. That's the two ways mentioned in verses 13 and 14. But verse 15 tells us to watch for the true, avoid the false. Let's read that. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Be ye 
You shall know them by their fruit. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good fruit bringeth forth every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. A corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth forth not bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore by thy fruit ye shall know them. So we are cautioned to watch for the, the false. The false would be seen clearly by their fruit. The measure is the word of truth. And this verse has been used, I think, at least three times this week, this weekend. Galatians 1.8, where Paul says, If any teach any other gospel, let him be accursed. And here we would like to cite, uh, as one of the ways another gospel is preached, is the criticism of the pioneers. And, and let me uh, may, maybe say this this way. You know, when Brother Thomas, and I think everyone sitting in this room, believes that Brother Thomas, by the year 1860, early 1860s, had the entire truth. When you think about, you know, why we have traversed through this study of the, of the early Galilean period, you see that Christ did not permit this truth to be partially understood. He went into great detail to make sure that it was understood in its absolute, complete detail. This is true of the prophets. I mean, we can go back to Abraham, to Moses, to David. They all had a perfect understanding and perception of the truth. Now, let's come to the, the 2,000 years of Gentile times, the period of the two fish. Okay? Or you, John Thomas, and no, he, he wasn't the first person that came up with the truth in 1848. Certainly he wasn't. There had been people in 1600 who had come out of the, out of the Reformation movement who had the truth. But that doesn't concern you and I. We can get slight glimpses of what was written in 1400, where interestingly, and I think Ned yesterday referred to the protesters. Well, isn't it interesting that in the in approximately the year 1400, there was a group who called themselves Pseudo in Christo, which means Brothers of Christ. So when John Thomas selected that name in the early 1860s, it had to be providentially done. He just didn't grab a name and that was it. So, by that time, this man, this brother, had the truth in its purity. Absolute purity. Now, doesn't it seem a little ridiculous if somebody comes up in 1960, 100 years later, and wants to add to what he has already given us? Add to. And what did the, the, the writer of the Apocalypse say? There was a curse pronounced upon anyone who added to or subtracted from that book. Now, we believe firmly that those who offer criticism of the pioneers are in this group of, of the apostates, the false. And they are now saying that, well, you really didn't have the truth in 1860 or in 1880 or in 1900. The truth didn't really come until I got here in 1962 or three or whenever. Well, I tell you, brothers and sisters, 
you better, we as a community of believers should be very, very careful because the, the apostles have, have made it clear, the Lord himself, that there would be the false brethren, those who come in sheep's clothing amongst them. Now, I realize it's very difficult for us to say, well, brother so-and-so, but we don't need to do that. Christ says here that you shall know these people by their works. In, it's in our hands, and we should understand. And then look what he says in 21 and 22. Many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast those devils? And that, again, means taught the truth. Think about that a moment. And in thy name cast those devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And what Christ says, And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Let's get a picture. The judgment seat. The, those who are today amongst us will be standing and saying, Lord, Lord, did we teach the truth to 25 people or 125 people? Look at all the things we did. What's Christ going to say? He's going to say, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. That, brethren, is within the household. We're not dealing out of the household. We're not dealing with Mr. Falwell or Mr. Graham or whoever. These are people in the household that are going to stand at the judgment seat and complain and say to Christ, look, we, we, we taught a lot of people the truth. We cast those devils, which means we taught the truth to people. And he's going to announce to them, I never knew you. This is a powerful story to you and to me. Right. Our Lord closed the sermon with a story of two men, which Brother Ken has referred to this morning, a wise man and a foolish man. The wise man built on a rock, and that rock withstood rain, flood, and wind. The foolish man built on sand, and it fell before the rains and the floods. We know in our time, that's today, 1985, there's much rain. There are many floods, and there's much wind. And I think we all know the symbology in rain, flood, and wind. And it's a lot of it, brothers. Paul expressed the thought in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Let's turn there for a moment. Ephesians 4, 13, and 14. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we be henceforth no more care that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the sight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lay in wait to deceive but speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things which is the head even Christ carried about with every wind of doctrine doesn't that describe our period I mean it doesn't it, it, you know, well, it's pretty simple. I mean, all we have to do is to have eyes and ears that perceive and understand and hear. 
We know here both the perfection of the, ser- of the service of Christ and the winds that would try the foundation. We can appreciate the, the two ways of verses 13 and 14 speak of within the body. When we consider this. Now let's go back to 13 and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and narrow is wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many go many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. We have, after baptism, come to the two paths of law. One to life in the kingdom of God, and the other to return to death at his tribunal. And you might also think of this in the same context as our Lord said later, many are called but few chosen. We're not dealing with, and see, and remember the pictures painted to us that, you know, there's a narrow way and all Christadelphians are walking down this narrow way. There's a broad way that he had all the world going that way. Well, that's not what our Lord is saying. He is saying that there's two ways here. We are in the truth. We've come through the waters of baptism, and it's a two-paths two two paths they path. One is a narrow way that leads to life. The other way is the way that leads to death. And it's all within the household. Remember, we have, after baptism, come to two paths of walk. One to life in the kingdom of God, the other to return to death at his tribunal. As our Lord said, many are called the broad gate, few are chosen, those that will walk the narrow path to life. We return to judge not that you be not judged. Our Lord gives us much guidance through his word to warn us of the fall and to know how to select the truth, to be wise, not foolish. Then it's up to us. The reason is clearly set forth that we might learn so that we can rule with him in his kingdom. I guess the best place to, to think of that is, is what Paul said. If, if we're not capable of judging small matters among ourselves, we are not worthy to judge in the kingdom age when, well, when we will be called upon to judge angels. It's an important thing to remember. This is our time of probation, and we must learn to judge matters amongst ourselves. If we can't judge matters now, we can't judge with Christ or rule with Christ in the kingdom age. Our times are perilous. Jude describes them. We want to return to an overview of our journey. The guide is seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And then we note that there are eight things that he sets forth as a part of this seeking the kingdom of God. He first tells us to judge righteous judgment. Now think about that. And that means that 
Uh, well, exactly what it says, and it's a simple statement. It's judge, righteous judgment. He tells us, secondly, to be careful of false judging. To be very careful that, that our judging is according to the law and the precepts. To pray without ceasing. To be generous to all. And that means exactly what it says. When someone is in need, help. And that doesn't mean change your money to another organization that will in turn redistribute your funds according to what they think. It means that you and I, it's incumbent, again, this is part of judging. You have to judge what is, what is properly needful and what is not. But to be generous to all. And you can cite easily Ananias and Sapphira. You know, they were just going to hold back a little bit for themselves. And I think it's important to remember it all belongs to the Lord. The cattle upon a thousand hills are his. So he says in the psalm. So we don't have anything. And bear in mind, whatever we got, he can take it away from us in a flat. So be generous to all. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. That's a simple rule to follow. If you, you do to others, how you would want them to treat you. And always, you know, keep that as a principle. And we should all have that as a principle in our life. Set ourselves, how would I want brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so to treat me? I'm going to do the same thing to him or her. Walk the straight way. Walk the straight way. The straight and narrow way that leads to life. Be careful of the fall. And, and notice how this is repeated over and over in our Lord's discourse to his disciples. Be careful, understand, perceive, love, be generous. But, but watch for the fault. Be wise and build upon a rock. Because the rock is the foundation on which our hope rests and on which we stand. And so as we ponder the message of our Lord to his brethren, we recognize the words of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians are a sequel to the words of our Lord. It shows to his disciples of all ages the high calling to which we are called in Christ Jesus. We want to turn to Ephesians again and read verses from the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 4. Again, as we said, this is a sequel to, to the Sermon on the Mount. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As one body and one Spirit, even as you are called, in one hope of your calling. And the 13th through the 16th verses, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. And again, that word perfect again. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that ye be henceforth no more children tossed to and fro and carried about 
with every wind of doctrine, by the flight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but receive the truth in love. But speaking the truth in love may go up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. We remember his zeal in the house of the Lord. We are back to that, that Passover when he first went to Jerusalem. That was the first view after his baptism that he'd gotten of the temple and the temple service in Jerusalem. He'd been there before, probably 30 times. But that day, we remember his zeal as he drove out those who made his father's house a house of merchandise. He told them that he would destroy the temple, his body, and raise it up in three days. Again, the third day of Cain of Galilee. The disciples remembered this on the resurrection morn three years later. At that time, he was visited by Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus, the one who didn't know what it meant to be born of the Spirit. He knew what it meant to be born of water, but not of the Spirit. At that Passover, three years later, Nicodemus was present to bring aloes and myrrh, about a hundred pound weight, John 1939. They remind us to us that Nicodemus, who knew very little at A.D. 30, for the Passover of A.D. 30, by A.D. 33, Passover was a witness to the resurrection. We, too, are witnesses to the resurrection by our attendance at the table of the Lord each first day. We have been born of, of water and now await our birth of spirit. If, if we walk before him in perfect understanding and behavior. Brethren, the days are short, and it behooves each of us to take heed lest the Son of Man find us sleeping at his appearance. We're going to close with the thought that we had yesterday of the impotent man. Remember, he was impotent 38 years. If we count Israel of our day, their birth in 47, 38 years, impotent, we come to the year 1985. That's the year that we stand here. So our prayer is that we may each take heed the word, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, and that we might, in the day of his reappearance, be granted a place in that everlasting kingdom. Thank you.